everybody. My name is Patrick Catanzariti. I run DevDiner and I am here today with Ian Lyons, who is going to tell me all about the wonderful world of technology that he sees every day. He's actually a man with a lot of ideas and a very inspired man, actually. Uh, I spend a lot of time speaking to him. We've already been speaking for half an hour before the interview has even begun. So he's a man with many ideas and I think he might be very useful for people to listen to and Hear his thoughts if you're out there trying to work out what you can do in the technology space. Uh, if you need a bit of guidance or thoughts, hopefully you'll be able to help. So, hello, Ian. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, to start with, tell us a bit about yourself and your work in the industry because you've had a lot of experience. So for those who don't know you yet, just a bit about who you are, where you've come from. I started in technology pretty young, uh, I think it was around eight or nine years old. Uh, our first PC was an XCD Sorcerer from 1979. I'm really impressed on being named PC Sorcerer, <laughs> that already sounds good. They, they have one of the most epic uh, marketing shots I've ever seen. It's a guy carrying this big desktop around and trying to pick up a, 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 a university girl who's wearing clogs. <laughs> I, I recommend you Google image search XCD Sorcerer, it's spectacular. Sure, sure. And that sort of touches on a, a, a big point for me. I've had a real love-hate relationship with technology. Mm. Um, I guess I, like, like many people listening, I've got an aptitude for technology, but I also kind of like women, and, and those two never met <laughs> 30 years ago, 35 yep. years ago. They, they, were, they were far, far apart. So I've sort of had this love-hate relationship with it. Um, but I've also enjoyed uh, an amazingly diverse career because of my understanding of technology. Um, and I remember I used to be the young, always the youngest person in the room when something important was being discussed in a business context because mm. at least I had that insight in technology. And my willingness to bridge the understanding from, from something highly technical to how it's applicable to, to society or a business, that, that got me in the room. Um, now I find myself consistently the oldest person in the room. I'm still in the room, which I'm, I'm happy about. But um, I think there's something there as well um, for, for older developers. Um, and it's something I certainly look for, um, you know, that life experience and the ability to empathise with large groups of people is critical. And it's something that you just have to develop throughout your life experience time. And the older you are, hopefully, the more empathy you have and that's incredibly valuable yeah um and just touching on what i think innovation is and i think it's misunderstood a lot of the time for me it's solving hard problems mm -hmm. that deserve to get solved um and a great place to start is just solving the hard problems that you encounter in your own life yeah. um and then figuring out whether there's there's a market for that you know whether other people are, are struggling as well with the same sorts of things yeah um, and I've, I've sort of never really listened to anything limiting in my career, uh, yeah. being told no, absolutely not. When I wanted to go back to Europe and, and work throughout Europe, mm -hmm. I was working for Mars Foods here in Australia, and they were rolling out the first sort of office networks on oh, yeah. Digital Equipment Corporation. It was called Pathworks. It was still Token Ring, and Ethernet was just coming in. And I was recommended to someone in, in the London office uh, for Mars, and I went out for, for just a chat, and I realised they were offering me the job. That's kind of what Excellent. happens internally. <laughs> I said, look, I really want to travel. And, and my manager said, look, there's absolutely no scope for travel in this, none. Oh. 
No. <laughs> um, so I started the job. It was interesting. And within uh, two weeks, I was on a plane to, to Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked my way through Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and I spent nine months in, in Russia as well. Sounds so good. It was great. Because the, 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 the problem that was worth solving is that all of the uh, IT managers in all the different countries were having trouble implementing our system. So I simply asked the question, well, would, would it help you if I came out and sort of <laughs> worked you through it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Would you pay for it? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so suddenly Excellent. I'm yeah. the one from the team who's actually very customer facing, mm-hmm. have a better understanding of where the challenges are and was able to bring that back to the dev team so that our, everyone's job became easier. Very valuable. Uh, and this is something I, I say to, to sort of students um, who, who think the approach is to, to submit a, a resume. Mm-hmm. When you, let's, let's think about a resume from the perspective of someone who has to read resumes. Your resume mm-hmm. is not the only one. Yeah. Yours is on a pile of 20 or 30 other resumes. And the problem that causes for that person is that it's keeping them from what they'd rather be doing which is playing with their kids or watching a TV show or doing anything else. Yeah. And what they actually have to do is filter out the crap from the truth. Yeah. Times 30. Mm-hmm. And your resume is yet another one on those piles. And so it might be five to ten minutes of extra work for that person. So you're, you're another problem in their life. Now let's contrast this with someone who um, really becomes clear on, say, choose six companies that you really want to work with and why. Then tune into the things that the people within those companies are talking about, the problems. So they might have a blog, mm-hmm. they might have a Twitter account, they might have a LinkedIn profile that, that is to, you know, active or not active. But being able to tune in to the things that they're talking about mm-hmm. and then applying your skills to solving those problems. Yeah. So if your first approach to someone senior at a company is Hey, I read this this thing you were talking about. Um, you know, try, trying to reduce friction in payments for, for customers. I've done this and this, and I think if we took this approach, um, we could actually a- address this issue. Yeah. The difference between those two approaches: one is a problem; the other one, your your initial approach is solving a, a hard problem. They will create a job for you. Yeah. There's no doubt. You know, I've, I've spoken to so many business mm-hmm. owners about this, and they go, yes, there is a job waiting for someone <laughs> who's making our life easier yeah. versus someone who's going to be saying, oh, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do mm-hmm. I do next? Yeah. Um, there is a massive amount of work there. Um, so the way this worked for me is I'm, I'm very curious about things. Mm-hmm. I'll investigate, I'll ask questions, I'll apply my knowledge to things, and before I know it, I'm being asked to, well, what's your consulting rate? <laughs> um, I've actually got a really good comeback for that now. It's, uh, I look them in the eye and I say, look, don't worry, I'm reassuringly expensive. <laughs> Nervous laughter always ensues, but uh, it, it's worked out really well so far, especially because I can give a money-back guarantee after mm-hmm. a certain period. Okay. Um, so I like to be, I like to feel, I, I like to get my, cus- my clients to feel that I've been very generous Mm-hmm. with my time, my knowledge. Um, they're paying a lot, but they're also getting the value out of it. Yeah. Well. So that's, that's kind of my, uh, my uh, work in, my in-, in the industry. I've, I've been lucky enough to work with some large brands globally. Um, uh, Mars took me 
I found myself on the, the tarmac of Vladivostok International Airport without my passport. My, I stopped feeling my toes about 20 minutes ago because <laughs> it's minus 32 degrees and I have to get $1.5 million worth of computer equipment off a private jet that we chartered wow. from Moscow. I was handed $10,000 US cash to bribe the guys <laughs> wow. and everyone just leaves. And I'm going, they're going, yeah, okay, if anyone knows how much I've got in my breast pocket, I'm dead. <laughs> yep. uh, but managed to get it all off the plane for $400. I'm very, very proud of very that. Very good. Because the Russians in Moscow paid $1,500 to get it on the plane. <laughs> um, wow. So I've been very lucky. Uh, I worked at a startup as well in Los Angeles in 2000. Cool. Where uh, It was a publishing startup focusing on e-business. Mm-hmm. Um, we published physical magazines, we ran events, um, we moved to Los Angeles and four months later the tech crash happened. Uh, yeah. So having to readjust to a new reality, it's, it's something I've had a bit of experience in. We, we focused on events, we were running events in London, New York, San Francisco, about a thousand people, mm-hmm. high ticket item. Then September 11 um, decimated mm-hmm. that business for everybody. Yeah. So again, having to readjust um, to, to what the market wanted was, was something we, yeah. we had to figure out quickly. Um, and it, the first thing I, I do is, is put in a, a listening platform, so mm-hmm. analytics. Because uh, it's always been obvious to me to be able to look at a data set and tell a human story. Yeah. And I've learned over time that it's really important to start with that singular human story that people can understand and empathise with. And when I say people, I'm talking specifically about the people who can actually shift resource allocation to make a difference. Yeah. So usually it's at the, at the boardroom table. Those people need to understand, to feel what someone else is feeling, i.e. customer, yeah. and then be motivated to change things, even if it's expensive to change things. It is a very tough thing to attempt to do. And you never, ever want to start with statistics. But if you start with a singular human story that someone either feels good about or usually bad about, mm. and then you back it up with statistics, so you, you tell someone about this horrible experience this customer's had, and you say, by the way, that represented 25% of our customers last month. Oh, wow. Yeah. And based on very conservative numbers, that was half a million dollars revenue that not only went begging, they're not going to come back to us. Yeah. That tells the story perfectly, and then they know to change. That shifts. Yeah people. Um, so having analytics that, that allows you to, to translate it into a singular human story that is still relevant to the company, mm. that's the thing. And I never knew why it was obvious to me, but not obvious to everyone else, um, <laughs> until about two years ago, uh, Case Western University did some re- fMRI research on mm. brains. Turns out I've got a, a defective brain. Or a superhuman brain, which is focused better. Or, no, it's actually a lack of focus that was really? interesting. So there are, there are two brain pathways. One that is activated for analytical thought, mm-hmm. and the other one is activated for empathic thought. And they're mutually exclusive. Okay. So there's a chemical that suppresses one or the other, depending on a, our need. Yeah. And evolutionarily, we've never had to do both at the same time. Now, if you have a defective brain, um, and one of the defects is uh, ADHD, that chemical suppressant is itself suppressed. So I can switch between looking at a spreadsheet and understanding what someone went through behind those numbers. Yeah. 
but most people can't. And when I'm, I, I'm medicated now. When I'm medicated, it's very useful for me to focus, but mm. I, it's not easy for me to do that either. Now. So I sort of balance it. Mm. Um, and if anyone's listening and, and you, you suspect you've got ADHD, it's, it's a real insight because mm -hmm. most people don't have the ability to do both of these things at the same time. So there's an opportunity there. Huge opportunity, especially if you're in technology and you're sitting on massive amounts of data, mm -hmm. translating that into why give a shit yeah. is really important. Yeah, yeah. And it gives you it's such a massive opportunity to to change the world for good yeah um yeah you, you you can torture data into telling you anything you want <laughs> but if you if you have the ability of, of really understanding and empathizing with, with the people behind what the data is telling you uh you have such a powerful mechanism to to then share it with others who have the resources and you will be invited back again and again and again to do that yeah it's a very incredibly valuable skill to be able to go through and do that with data because most people find data very scary mm. or just overwhelming yeah. and something they just want somebody else to deal with so good that you can convince somebody else but also somebody else is actually delivering results and seeing the right things in that data rather than just oh i'll give you another report and i'll add some graphs to it and there you go data is analyzed no, no board <laughs> needs yet another 40-page report. <laughs> what they want to see is the first page of what to do mm. and 39 other pages backing that up if they want to check it out. Yeah. So you still have to do the work. But trust me, all they want is five minutes from you on what to do for the next quarter. Yeah. And as you build up that trust, it's, it's literally five minutes. And yeah. then they can worry about other things. And that, that's incredibly valuable as well. Excellent. Okay, that's a really good background on everything. As everybody listening, I'm sure can tell, Ian's done a lot of stuff, just in general. Uh, one of the most recent things that you were involved in was the Startup Week in Sydney. So tell us, how did it go? Uh, what was your involvement? And yeah, what, what did you see? What was the most exciting highlights? All that sort of stuff. Right. Um, the opportunity I saw for Startup Week is um, to, to bring together the, the various startup communities initially around Sydney. Mm -hmm. There are about 60, 50 or 60 of them. They've been doing lots of great work, but pretty much from an outsider's perspective in isolation. Yeah. So if I was a corporate or government and I wanted to interface with the startup community, there wasn't a single interface point. Yeah. Um, that was the opportunity I saw together with the way the zeitgeist has moved. Um, startups and entrepreneurs are certainly the, the flavor of the month now for politicians. Mm -hmm. So they're one of the big new entrants that's looking for an interface. Uh, traditional companies are also looking for how to, uh, to utilize some of the startup um, uh, methodologies like lean startup and better listening and being mm -hmm. more customer-centric, human-centered design. Um, so bringing together these communities um, I was about to say under one umbrella, and that's, that's exactly the opposite of what we did. Um, I, I don't like being controlled. I know no one else likes yep. to be controlled. So the way we've always approached it is that Startup Sydney is a support organisation. It's not for profit, um, and it supports these communities in achieving the outcomes that, that they're hoping to achieve. But one of the things we can do as a single entity is make it easier for, for corporates to provide sponsorship dollars, mm -hmm. to take some government money, license things like the, the mobile app, yeah. which was uh, directed at, at increasing engagement, giving people a voice, 
is a very good app. Uh, and yep, it, it, there, there were a number of case, uh, um, events where it worked really, really well. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about that. Um, and then on an ongoing basis, sort of funneling resources to those communities to support them, mm. but also giving a much easier entry point to, to those new entrants. Yeah. Now, there were 65 events run across the week. Uh, we didn't organize many events at all. It was the, the community partners that did, and yeah. that's really, really important. Very helpful. Yeah. Uh, what we did is we put a website together that brought it all together. Mm. Um, we encouraged people to shift events into the week to put on new events. Um, we supported them with marketing, with um, if they didn't have uh, RSVP mechanisms or email marketing, we provided that. And also we licensed the app, which was otherwise quite expensive and, and made yeah. it available to them. We didn't mandate any of this stuff, but if you wanted to use it, you could. Yeah. Um, that, that's going to be our approach going forward. Some of the, um, the landmark events may were uh, everything IoT. Um, it was positioned as the seminal big IoT conference in Australia. Yeah. It was run by a guy called uh, Eitan uh, Beanstock, who is Director of Global Growth at ATP Innovations. Mm -hmm. He had 10 plus years of Intel Capital in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He's from Israel. He has many connections to the VC and startup community in Israel and yeah. has run events with them before. Um, so his idea was to, to have half the room full of corporates who are starting to become aware about the opportunities around IoT. Um, innovators, developers, um, as well as uh, startups are actually working in, in IoT. So mm -hmm. if you look to the left and you look to the right, you, you, you're sitting next to someone who's from a different world, but yep. you work together and you can do amazing things. Um, and from my perspective, the opportunity for Australia in IoT is, is to be the proving ground for the world yeah. And we've done this many times, um, similar to the way that Mars rolled out office networks first in Australia in um, the late, eight, late 80s, early 90s. Um, we're a relatively small country, 25 million people, fairly densely um, packed together in cities. We're a Western society, so we're mm -hmm. very similar to large markets overseas. And the risk point is very much lower. So yeah. test things here before you roll them out overseas, I think should continue to be our sort of, um, uh, what's that thing called? Um, basically, you know, we should be calling to the world to yeah, come yeah, here yeah. and test things that otherwise would be too risky or would take too long. Um, and certainly for IoT, there are massive opportunities. Um, you know, I'm surprised that uh, 3D Robotics didn't spend more of its seed funding in Australia testing drones because we have a much better regulatory framework than the FAA is providing. Yeah, so it makes more sense to do it again. And we have some of the most mechanised farming in the world because mm -hmm. our farms are so large. So the, the, the machines on the ground are already connected. You, you create an, ec an entire technical ecosystem from the sky down to the ground and you can manage farming much, much more efficiently. Um, why not come to Australia to do that? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so that was a, a huge one. There was immense interest in the final event of last week or before now, which was blockchain. Mm -hmm. The thing that surprised me was that with a number of lawyers in the room, mm -hmm. and this is a big tip for people. Um, 
uh, I didn't understand why there were so many lawyers, but I could see that they were there through the app because when people register, you register your company and your title. Uh, yes. Thirty percent of the room are lawyers. Why? <laughs> they're not technic. They're not known to be technically savvy or early adopters. So I went and spoke to to one of them, and he told me that their their clients asked them about blockchain, mm. and if they say we don't know, that client goes looking for another law firm. Because the, the clients trust their, their law firm to understand the regulatory environment, to uh, understand the risks and opportunities, and, and I don't know is not a valid answer, yeah. you lose the account. When the account is a big bank, that's really bad. Yeah. Massive impact. Um, and, and the opposite of that is if you position yourself as the law firm who knows about this stuff, mm -hmm. you win those clients. Yeah. So that screams to me, and this is all coming out of a data empathy perspective. Yeah. Right. We need to put on more events. We need to market it to law firms, and we need to charge what they will bear because it's yeah. highly valuable. They're all looking for that knowledge. So, so the, the the big part of the funding for blockchain events might come from the legal profession, and that cross subsidizes access to entrepreneurs yeah. who need to be in the room as well. Exactly. Actually, make it all work. Um, so that was very exciting and the level of discourse was amazing and uh, just getting back to the app, I, I wanted to hear from the people who don't put their hand up. Yeah. They're the ones who are quiet, incredibly thoughtful and my, my hypothesis was that if we gave them a voice, the rest of the room could upvote just like Reddit. They could upvote that question because yeah. it was a great question. And then, then therefore the zeitgeist in the room directs the conversation. Yeah, yeah. When that happens, um, that's exciting. And it happened in IoT. There was a panel of uh, selected startups, and it was chaired by Ian Gardner from AWS. And Mark Pesci, who's in the audience, asked the question, um, why doesn't Australia have a hardware accelerator? What would it take mm -hmm. for this to happen? Very quickly, we saw seven upvotes on that question from the audience. There was a bit of a conversation that started. So yeah. it was clearly... That he, he nailed, nailed that question. I walked up to Ian, showed him my phone. He looked at it, nodded, and then asked the question. Mm. As soon as he did, there was actually an audible cheer from the audience. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. Um, Cisco was in the room. Kevin Block was a speaker in the morning. He, to his credit, stayed the whole day and engaged. Five minutes after that question was asked, he stood up and he said, okay, I'm here as Cisco now. What do we need to do to make this happen? Fantastic. Don't ask for money. What else can we do? And it's progressed quite a bit since then. And I think there's, if it hasn't already been announced, I'm not going to announce it here, but there's going to be a big announcement from Cisco to enable something around, not, not necessarily a hardware accelerator, but an IoT accelerator. Excellent. Because Probably it encompasses good. a lot more than hardware. Yeah. It's, it's the software. It's potentially blockchain. It's... A much deeper level of thinking about how we approach this brave new world where yeah. algorithms drive more of our physical environment and if we don't do it carefully that gets extremely dangerous because we have a rich history of unintended consequences yeah uh, let's just run in and build something and make lots of money and not really think it through yeah <laughs> yeah because we both ourselves as as, as humans are, are going to be the recipients of, of an algorithmically driven physical world, mm -hmm. but also our environment as well. So we don't want to accidentally um, further exacerbate the, the strain that we're putting on, on yeah. the ecosystem.
Yeah, and I'm talking about natural ecosystem. Yeah, so there, yeah. there has to be a lot more thought and a lot more people involved in the development than there currently are. I think it's it's far too technically based. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Well, then I'm going to jump to a question I was going to ask you oh, yeah. like later, but it actually fits in much better here, which is that there is that perception in the IoT that everything I'd want to do in the Internet of Things space is already done. It's already taken by competitors, Samsung, Google, Apple. They've all got home hubs and stuff. Mm. I can't do anything. How am I going to innovate? Do you have any tips for people out there, developers listening, who really want to innovate and they like the idea of the Internet of Things, but they don't know what to do? How do they innovate successfully and make mm. something that will actually work? Um, well, we'll go back to, to my earlier point around solving hard problems. Mm. And, and I've always been an early adopter. Most of my uh, lighting in my apartment is, is LED and, and, and Arduino controlled. I've got several Philips Hues. Mm. Um, I've got a Plex Media Center. Um, I've even got those, that, that ambi-light concept behind my, <laughs> my plasma screen. Cool. Because it makes a big difference. But here's the thing. None of them are connected yeah. in a way that makes sense to me as a human. So when you, when you think through the, the context, sometimes I want, um, I want my environment to change my mood. Yeah. If I've had a shitty day at work, sometimes I want my environment to support my mood mm -hmm. or to um, uh, enhance my mood. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I love music. Uh, I, like, I really like music videos. So I've downloaded a lot and it's mm -hmm. available. But I find the curation of that very, very time consuming. Yeah. Music curation exists. Music video curation does not exist. <laughs> Music video curation interfaced with the environment, yeah. like lighting, air conditioning, um, that doesn't exist at all. Yeah. So how you get these systems talking together um, isn't being done well. Yeah. I, I've found, I, I've not found anything. I think we agree. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities in that. Um, even... Yeah, just, just really crazy things. Like I like how iTunes uh, will, will go across my entire music collection and normalize the volume yep. so one thing's not crazy louder than anything else. <laughs> that literally and does not exist that's... in music videos. Yeah. So I'm always lunging for the remote control <laughs> to, to, to change things. Um, and here's another just really stupid, stupid example. Um, I still need infrared to turn my TV on and off. Yep. It does have HDMI and it does have what I think it's called CEC. So you can control power over over HDMI and the thing's got Wi-Fi, uh, <laughs> Ethernet. But it has all the technology. I can't. I can turn it off via Wi-Fi. I can't turn it on. So I have to find <laughs> yep. an infrared remote and point it at the screen to do this. Which is ridiculous. That's a very good plan. Um, so really simple things that make human lives better, uh, I think are huge opportunities that, that are not being addressed very well at the moment. Um, you look at the Nest thermostat, and I have yet to see a blog post for how to implement that in Australia. Yeah. Um, from what I've understood, uh, HVAC systems in the US are fairly standardized and they're fairly simple, whereas mm -hmm. the air conditioning systems here are much more complex. Yeah. And it's very difficult to integrate Nest into an Australian system. But if you can figure it out, 
You can uh, be the one. You will get a lot of early adopters paying yeah. you to do this. Um, when people come and see our, our home entertainment system, I, I guess the, the need for me, and I know I'm a subset and a, very much an early adopter, is I hate having my time and attention abused by an advertiser who knows mm. nothing about me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's happened to us recently. We, we went to Fitness First, which I hate, and I won't go back again. <laughs> um, they, they play music videos, except when they're playing ads to pad their profit margins. Ah, uh, yeah. And they were, at a much louder volume, shoving uh, feminine incontinence products <laughs> at me. Finally, you've been waiting. <laughs> I'm going to be told about this while you're exercising now. And, and that... My anger around that um, is, is largely driven by my understanding of technology yeah. and knowing that I, I can control my media consumption completely now. Mm. And when I'm in a situation where I can't, it's frustrating for me. Yeah. But I think as soon as you're aware of how easily you can control your environment through technology, you don't go back. It's true. It's just like having better, you know, the better, the faster internet access speed you experience, mm -hmm. that, that becomes your set point. Yeah. It's hard to go no down. No way going back from that. Um, so finding, you know, I think more and more people will experience this mm -hmm. and more and more people will not want to go back. And that that's a big opportunity um, uh, around IoT. Um, how can I have a, a, an environment that supports me as a, as a human? Yeah, um, and you can have tons of different environments too. So it's literally, so one of the environments that you thought you would do has already been done, then find a different one because there are so many places that people are using tons of technology or could be using technology. Awesome. Here's a big opportunity. How do you, how do you, um, oh, that's the right word, two people in a room, who wins? Sure. And how do you compromise? <laughs> You know, yeah. So I had dispute resolution in, in the physical space when, when, when everything's controlled by algorithms, how do you do that? That's, yeah. that's an interesting one. It's a very uh, good question. And uh, I guess that's a nice segue into something that I've been talking about for a little while. It's the, it's the idea of having a digital butler. Mm -hmm. Digital agent's the same thing, but I actually like the nuance around butler. Yeah. Because it's... It's something that we understand in popular culture. We've seen it in movies. Um, a butler is there to work for you yeah. in any context. They shield you from annoyances. Mm -hmm. They answer the door, and if it's not going to be something you're interested in, they turn them away. Um, they, they understand the different contexts within which you operate. There's a family context. There's a work context, government context. Mm -hmm. Uh, they understand your they understand your preferences explicitly and implicitly. Yeah. Now, when you map technology onto this, you can have your mobile phone today feeding implicit information about you, so where you are, mm -hmm. your movements, um, your explicit preferences can also be fed in. But it becomes a, a very intelligent interaction. Your your butler can ask you smart questions. Yeah. In the right context at the right time, and it it becomes actually pleasurable to sort of increase the knowledge this butler has about you because the, the, the payback is immediately yeah. obvious. And really critically, I believe we will pay for our own butlers. Mm -hmm. Directly or indirectly, it doesn't matter, but the financial obligation of, of whose interest this works in becomes yeah. very, very clear. You don't want to have a butler with 
financial interest is not you because then just that means that they're not going to be always in your interest because exactly. they're clearly in somebody else's interest. So Google should not be trusted to do this. Facebook should not be trusted to do this. No other publisher should mm. be trusted to do Makes this. Sense. And when you rest control over your data, and no bank should be trusted to do this either, mm. your butler should. And your butler is tasked with interfacing into the various marketplaces in your interest. So if you're shopping around for a loan, your butler will disclose to the marketplace anonymous information yeah. that has also been third-party validated by your bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This person does have the payment history that, that suggests a good credit. This person does have this amount of money in their bank account. But it's all intermediated by these agents um, that do things with the minimum amount of data sharing required yeah. to achieve the outcome. So I think brand in the future is going to be much more around how much do you trust this organization with what level of information. And it can become as simple as a slider of, yeah, I really trust these guys a lot. Mm. And I'm happy to share a lot of information proactively or no, this is the minimum amount. Yeah. So I envisage a fairly near future where every time you change address, your butler already knows you're about to change address. Yeah. And they present to you a report that says, okay, I've updated these entities with the high trust relationship and the transactional arrangement. These ones, they were important a few years ago, but I suspect they're less important now. So yeah. you get to choose. Okay. And these ones, no, we're just, they're just going to fall off because they haven't maintained a trusted relationship for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so increasing, you know, and a, and a sort of almost prosaic example of this in the real world is when I walk into a cafe, um, through my phone as the technology mechanism, I want it to proactively share two things when it realizes I'm inside a cafe for long enough. Yeah. I wanted to share my first name and my coffee preference with the, the point of sale system. In return, I want to get two things. One is the, the price of the coffee and the estimated time it's going mm. to take. And then my phone buzzes in my pocket. The first time I take it out, in the lock screen, there's the price, $3.50. It's going to take three minutes. I press a button to enable that transaction to happen. It happens in the background. I sit down, start reading the paper. The next thing I hear is, Ian, your coffee is ready. Yeah. And that's when I have an interaction with, with the barista. But the payment's happened. I am part of that payment process. I've, I've authorized it. That, that's a critical thing for me. Um, and that's it. They don't need to know more information than that. Yeah. Helps me, helps the queues. I'm not waiting yeah. around aimlessly. Makes everything a bit more efficient. And you know, when, when you create these experiences across people's lives, it gets pretty interesting. Yeah, well, that sounds fantastic. Cool, I think that should be good food for thought for people out there. There's actually plenty that you can do out there. Actually, I have the idea of having a digital butler consider making things similar multiple times. One day, somebody should do it if I don't get there first. Oh, I think <laughs> there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place, you know, things like federated login, federated identity, mm -hmm. third-party trust, um, you could potentially give a lot of transparency to various contexts. Yeah. One of the things that really irritates me is, is the simplistic notion of, of um, um, authority or, or reputation. Mm. Like a clout score is pretty meaningless because yeah. we all operate in different contexts. So find a context that matters to people and enable 
you know, uh, visibility, uh, interaction. I'm sure there are lots of hardware uh, tools. I, I can easily see an augmented reality um, uh, future where, you know, the first thing is put people's names above them, above yep. their heads. Yeah, just to make it easier to interact as a human being. Never you ever forget my name again. Uh, but then within the context, we, we met at Web Directions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really interesting context. So you, you have potentially um, development skills that you're interested in, um, or you know, just asking you, what, what are you hoping to take away from that two-day conference? Mm -hmm. Is it a job? Is it finding someone else who's interested in a similar thing? Is it a developer? Um, yeah, having an augmented so reality thing, yeah. but it, it has to be done with permission. Mm -hmm. um, I, I loved your post about facial recognition. You know, facial recognition has been around for ages. It's, yeah. it's called the, the storekeeper or the <laughs> owner of the store. They've been recognizing it's so much ages. easier when you tell humans to recognize faces as well. When yeah. <laughs> um, actually, on that note, there's a, there's a really cool test. I think it's done by uh, Scotland Yard. Okay. As, a, as an online test to see if you're a super recognizer. Okay, cool. So there's an initial five minute one, then a much bigger 45 minute one. And there is, there's some people who are just super recognizers. Excellent, I wish I was one of those people. Well, you can test. <laughs> I really, I really yeah. take my partner because I always say that person's, <laughs> it's just easy for me to recognize faces. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess maybe that's why faces have always been super important to me. Actually, here's a, here's a big sort of, not tip, but, I believe if, if you embody people in the digital world, um, another term for this is dig create a digital twin. Yeah. Um, if you put people's faces against how you're representing them, it changes everything. Yeah. Because A, you, you, you recognize patterns very easily. We recognize faces relatively easily. Mm. Um, it actually takes an enormous amount of our, our brain capacity to recognize faces, but because so much of our brains are dedicated to facial recognition, it seems really easy and fun. Yeah. Um, but when, when you see a human, it, it just triggers that, that empathic part of our brain yeah. to, to want to help people, I believe. Most people react this, you know, the same way. They, they want to be helpful and useful to other human beings. Yeah. Um, so any chance you get with technology to... to Put a human being forward as a human being yeah, use their face that's a very good point it's going to help you yeah. um and there are there are lots of times when you'd be happy to log in with your google profile your twitter profile sometimes facebook i guess um i'm a dog on facebook by the way so, <laughs> so it wouldn't work for you wouldn't work for me on facebook but the other was other ones that absolutely would yeah um and that's what I, what I think worked really well with the app the onboarding process pulled in your face and we i mm. heavily encouraged people to attach their, their face to their profile because I said, look, if you're asking a question and people look around and they think it's a good question, it makes it easier for them to yeah. find you, see what you're interested in, and then they approach you from a point of commonality and understanding. So the yeah. rapport starts from a much deeper level. And I really wanted to avoid, oh, what do you do? <laughs> Where are you from? Yeah. It's just like, you know, the, the, the people in the room are much smarter than that. Yeah. You give them tools to quickly see uh, what you've been working on, and if the conversation can start and move on from there, that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, just always approaching things from from a, a human perspective. I think just 
there's enormous safety in that. So you, mm. it avoids doing accidental, stupid things. Like if you're using a spreadsheet to make decisions, remember you can't be empathic to the impact of those decisions. And that's led to some really spectacular, dumb things in, in hindsight. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there was no way that person could see the impact. No. So, you know, th th that's kind of my, my, my request. You know, always put a human face on something you're about to do and see if it yeah. still makes sense. Now, leading on from that, yep. talking about augmented reality mm -hmm. and how exciting it is going to be. Because I know you're very excited about it. We spoke at length about augmented reality when we first met, which is very good and joint interest of ours. Yep. There are a lot of ethical issues, which I did cover a bit in my own opinion piece on it, but I'd really be keen to know, from your perspective at least, you mentioned a little bit already that ethical and moral issues exist mm. of getting people's permission and stuff mm. um, with facial recognition and all that sort of technology, but augmented reality is coming pretty quickly. Mm. The technology is advancing like crazy, mm. and not a lot of people are thinking about the ethical, moral bits yet. Everybody's trying to be the first in the technology race, to get there, what sort of areas do you think, for anybody who's considering building mm. AR stuff, how should they approach the moral and ethical issues? Mm. What issues are out there that sh they should be considering uh, from your perspective already? And is anybody thinking about it that you know? Um, yeah, I, I think you definitely want to avoid the, the glass hole mm -hmm. endpoint. Let's avoid that. <laughs> um, did, I can't remember, did, did uh, Google Glass have a light on when it was recording? I think it did. I think there was a slight light that would come on, but yeah. I think people didn't really know or weren't yeah. aware enough of it, yeah. or still just freaked out. And I think that's critical, particularly in the transition point, um, to let people know when they're being recorded. Um, and I always sort of look to the, the, the physical world for inspiration. So when someone looks at you and recognizes you, you know that's happened. Yes. There's a point of recognition in their face. Yeah. So during this transition point, at least during this transition point, why not in, in include that in whatever technology you're building? Yeah. You've been recognized. It's a really good signal to people. Yeah. Um, and one, one of the things I did uh, when we launched Solidifier, it was a hack space in Darlinghurst, a maker space in Darlinghurst. We wanted to put um, one of the new drop cam cameras. Mm. Um, I actually printed out a pair of eyes and put it on top of it. Yeah. Because my objective wasn't to catch people out, which yeah, is what a lot of security companies do. Just video people. That'd be creepy. Um, I wanted to let people know that they were being recorded so that they would automatically moderate their behavior, particularly yeah. if someone was being nefarious. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say, we did actually catch someone stealing something. And yeah. I just didn't want to get potentially sued by it. Otherwise, I would have posted it to YouTube. It was the funniest <laughs> video. It took this little turd 10 minutes to steal a wallet. He cased the joint no less than eight times. He walked in four times. And by the eight-minute mark, you're just yelling at him, just take the wallet already. <laughs> wow, he's not a very good thief for taking so long. But um, he, he obviously didn't see or didn't pay much attention to the eyes. <laughs> but there's a lot of research that shows when you put eyes on a wall, um, you know, near a bike rack or something, that there's a lot less incidence of theft. But always getting back to what we are familiar with and the signals that, that we take in as humans, build them in. Yeah. It gives you a lot of safety. Um, and I think also the, the, the start point has to be, 
how is this helpful or useful to another person? And yeah. if that's your intention, there's a lot of safety there. Yeah, yeah. Because if you make mistakes and it was accidental, one of the uh, unbelievably humane human capacities is for forgiveness. Yeah. Just look at Kickstarter. Someone fails but fails well. They keep in contact. They they yeah. They they genuinely wanting to do the right thing. They will always get up another Kickstarter. But if you fail badly, you stop communicating. You will never get up again because yeah. your previous community will make sure that you won't. So there's there's that accountability. But the capacity for forgiveness is pretty amazing. Um, and I've always found a lot of safety in try to be helpful and useful. Mm. Because, yeah, you can stuff up, but everyone knows that you're not trying to do it for the wrong reason. Whereas if your North Star is a profit motive, there are lots of ways to get derailed. Yeah, and people will hate your guts if they just see that yep. you were just trying to take advantage of them and yep. you just wanted money or marketing yep. or advertising dollars and that was it. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, usually short-term pressures lead to bad behaviours. I mean, that's why marketers should never be trusted with retargeting. Yeah. You know, where, where's the ability to extinguish a purchase intent? Mm -hmm. It's not there. It doesn't exist. Thank you, Google. <laughs> you know, I, I can't go in and say, stop selling my purchase intent from two months ago, mm -hmm. which has now become embarrassing yeah. because you're following me around all these websites and it's clear to everyone else that I'm something, you know, I, I showed an interest in this. Yeah. Um, it's a valid concern for sure. Yeah, one of my clients, you know, this is her example, she, um, she was shopping for bras on the weekend. Mm. Nothing wrong or no, embarrassing with that. usual thing that they need to do. But Monday morning, in a board meeting, uh, yeah. every website visited, here's a bra, here's another bra. That's a very important use case somebody should let Google know with. I actually did let Google know. <laughs> they, what uh, did they say? There's some very senior, very, very senior analytics people out from the US for a conference mm -hmm. and they were on a panel and I asked them, I recounted the story, you know what they did? They laughed. Uh, you know who wasn't laughing? The one woman on the panel. That's a very bad look. <laughs> so when you don't, when you lack the empathy for how embarrassing that is, yeah. it's really dangerous. So again, I think it always comes, comes back to, to empathy. Um, but uh, sorry, I've actually lost track of the, the question. Oh, yeah, augmented reality. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the most exciting stuff, uh, Scott O'Brien, who's been working in augmented reality for over a decade now, you know, showed me these um, uh, sort of goggles you can put on in a mind shaft, mm -hmm. mind shaft, and they've got internal positioning systems. So you're in this sort of deep, dark hole, but overlaid on that is uh, the directions to the exits and, and everything else. That is potentially life-saving. Awesome, yeah. Have that, yeah. Yeah, so, so I think you know, that there are certain use cases where this stuff just is, is absolutely brilliant. Um, making forays into social settings, that's going to be interesting. You know, I, I do want to see clearly when something's recording. Yeah. I do want to see when I've been recognised. Um, I, I think I would like to entrust my digital butler to also interface into the marketplaces and make sure that you know, if I'm being recognized and it, it's not in my interest, then something can happen. Yeah. You know, that requires a legal framework that, that, that supports that as well. Um, and we need, like I said in, in my comment to your post, you know, people like Michael Kirby, who 
think so deeply about the social implications. Mm. Um, they need to be listened to and, and speaking about the stuff right now. Yeah. Um, they might not be technologists, but they certainly know they're still thinking about, about the stuff and impact and how a legal framework yeah. can support or hinder things. And writing better laws is, is super, super critical. And laws take a while to get in place, yeah. so the earlier people start thinking about it, then the better off we will be. Yeah. And I, I'm lucky enough to know Michael Kirby, and, and he's, he's, he's finished with his um, high court appointment now, but he still believes he still has his opus in him. Mm. So, you know, I, from my perspective, if, if he helps guide this country and the world into a better legal framework that supports this, this new wave of technology, that that's a huge achievement in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be encouraging him to definitely do. To, to, to get involved. Um, what other things with augmented reality? Um, I think there are still massive technical challenges. I think everyone's massively overselling yes. things. They're yeah. all trying to prove that they are ahead of everybody else and kind of keeping it secret, being like, oh, you won't believe what we can do. And Yeah. And they're simulating everything, and, and I think most of it's bullshit. If, if, think about how difficult it is for humans to, to understand the 3D world and how easy it is to trick our yeah. stereoscopic vision and our brains, which have been evolved, and a lifetime of experience that you've had to understand, mm -hmm. oh, that's a building. That's not going to go on to infinity behind this corner. Yeah. There's a lot of contextual intelligence there, um, and Google saying it, it, it can... Do this now with a pair of glasses? <laughs> Bullshit. Uh, it can't. Yeah. No way doing it yeah, accurately. Um, so I think it's being oversold at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you, the opportunity is to bring it back into useful reality. Yeah. What can you augment today that doesn't require the nth degree of processing power or you know, 3D modeling of your city or whatever else it is um, yeah. to Take add value to people? Take current capabilities and be like, okay, we are limited, but how can we just use what we currently can do without worrying about the limitations impacting things? Yeah, that's yeah, simple nice. works really, really well, and I think lots of simple steps to complexity mm. is not yeah, there's enormous opportunity and the lower cost point that you can um, get to something. Actually, that's a good point. Um, you've just been increasingly uh, playing with. Uh, experiences on top of the Samsung yeah. VR goggles. Um, a friend of mine just launched a VR company. I will try to find his name. But I've seen lots of demos, and the navigation is always shitty. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're fiddling with different buttons, and then it is tough. as there are more goggles coming out, it's, it's hard. Um, what they've developed, they say, is, is basically a gaze point. Their, their initial... Um, Use cases real estate, so mm -hmm. they'll they'll fly a drone up to each floor, take photos, then three D model the building that doesn't exist yet, oh, yeah. and then let you do a virtual reality walkthrough. But of course, it's hard to walk in virtual reality. So what yeah. they've done is they start you off at the front door, and they create subtle gaze points in the distance, and all you do mm -hmm. is sort of gaze at that point, and if it's long enough, you'll you'll move to that point. Yeah. And once you've experienced it, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah. But getting to obvious is very, very hard. Um, this was the first uh, real estate use case for virtual reality I've seen that works really, really well. I think yeah. it will 
help people understand what they're buying and yeah. therefore drive purchase of apartments dramatically. It sounds like the perfect use case for virtual reality, especially with so much. Yeah, it's really subtle, really obvious. You don't need instructions. Yeah. When you get to a point where you don't need instructions, mm -hmm. then they're doing it right. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. that's that's really really valuable. Yeah. Um, what's another one with yeah? Uh, whenever you've got a consumer level product flooding the market, driving the price down and driving familiarity up. Mm -hmm. That's a nice platform to start with. So, so grab the Samsung goggles and, and start playing with it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I wouldn't try and build something from scratch. Yeah. Um, my partner's got a project she's trying to get off the ground to um, see if she can create an objective measure for concussion. Mm -hmm. At the moment, it's always subjective. And in, yeah. in any sports where there's a concussion risk, you need to be able to pull someone off the field. Uh, yeah. um, and a few months ago, the NFL just paid out three quarters of a billion dollars in wow. a class action lawsuit. So the, the money is there. Um, traditionally in medicine, if you wanted to, to measure someone's EEG, it's, it's a $50,000 machine and you're in mm -hmm. a lab. Um, but if you can use, if you can put a portable EEG onto a pair of Samsung goggles, which are mm -hmm. then connected to the internet, that gets really interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a low price point. One or two thousand dollars. It's portable. Every sporting club can afford it because mm -hmm. their insurance premiums go down. Yeah, they they dramatically lower the risk of, of someone going back on the field with a concussion and brain damage. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's an application. Yeah. Take consumer tech, bolt things together that, that haven't been brought together before. Um, then look, there are lots of unknowns. Yeah. You know the variability of EEG connections when you're sweaty, you've got different hair. That's, that's where you build value in the product. Though, yeah. is you have to be the one who goes and puts the effort into explore stuff that nobody's done before. Yeah. So the potential impact to, you know, for, for people who, you know, the, just the, the quality of life, let alone the, the financial cost, mm. that's, that's a great thing to pursue. Yeah. So if anyone's into biomedicine and has had experience in EEG, give me a, yeah, yeah, drop, drop me a line, I'll put you in touch with, with Claire. Um, yeah. Cool. If you're listening, get in touch with Ian. Okay. And you go to the final question, which is just getting some final thoughts on if you have any other tips for developers in emerging technology, anything that we haven't covered, anything that if somebody who is a developer comes up to you and there's one thing that you really want to make sure that they know that they're thinking about while they're getting into this industry, what would it be? I think it's to your point. Yeah, there's mythology that everything's been done already. Mm. Um, think back to you know, the early days of MP3. It was a pretty crowded market when the iPod came out. Yeah. Very crowded. What no one had done is bring together the three, uh, the five record industry uh, labels at the time. And that's yeah. what Jobs was able to do and create a really easy interface. So if you want to listen to music, iTunes made it easy and the yeah. iPod was the, the hardware device. Everything else was really hard. You had to literally sign up for five different systems mm, yeah. to be able to listen to music. Um, Spent forever putting in CDs, importing everything. Yeah. So it might be crowded, but you know, there's a long, rich history of, of uh, the, the first movers don't usually win. Mm. It's someone who has an insight into human behavior 
um, and a way of solving a hard problem that, that wins. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying you have to be the, the founder and the winner, but to join a company that's thinking that way. Um, the the tip-offs for me is whether they're talking about human-centered design, mm-hmm. how many times the word empathy is used in the in their blog posts, their website. Yeah. Um, are they trying to be helpful and useful or are they just trying to get a payout? Today? Yeah. Um, you know, even if you've got all the things right, like being helpful, useful, a lot of empathy, great team, there's no guarantee it'll work. Yeah. But I think your chances are a lot better in the in the long run. Um, so yeah, don't don't think it's all been done, but find people who you think are doing it for the right reasons. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah, my mind's sort of swirling around how difficult it is to you know for for a, an entrepreneur to find a developer. Yeah. Um, the advice I give to those entrepreneurs is ha- have a version one of something. Don't try and find a technical co-founder without a version one. Yeah. Because then everything's just a bit too amorphous. It's like there's nothing concrete. Mm. But if you show a really good developer a shitty version one, yeah. it's really obvious how they can improve it. <laughs> and that's where your conversation should start. Yeah. Then they get really excited and then they want to be like, oh, no, I want to touch things and change it and yeah. fix it because I see that there's a problem there. So maybe that's a big tip for developers as well. Make sure that, you know, if you're going into business with someone, that they've got a shitty version one. Yeah. And there's a clear path for making it better. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been really good. I think we've almost hit an hour. So that's a good length for a very in-depth podcast. There's actually a ton of stuff I want to still talk to you about. So we might do a follow-up podcast later. We'd love to. You've got a lot of stuff that you're into. And so I think... There's much that people can learn from you. But for now, that's the end of this Dev Diner podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you find this interesting, please spread it around to your friends. If you've got developer friends out there who you think this is applicable to, help them ease their curiosities or confusions. And yeah, if there's anything you'd like to ask Ian as well, because I'm going to be getting him in and asking more questions, feel free to ask questions, send me emails, and we'll get Ian more involved. Thanks, Ian. Thanks.